down to earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. This is News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, is there an ugly side to fashion? Kerry Summers explains the environmental impact of what we wear. Fashionista Sarah Malioko chronicles her journey into sustainable garments. Troy Armour and Maxime O'Sullivan explain how junk couture platform teaches sustainability through high fashion. And comedian and writer Cullum O'Regan is my guest this week for My Green Life, where he'll lighten up about the small green changes he's made in his everyday life. It's time to head down to earth. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But now it's time to find out why we need to take a second look at what we're wearing. My first guest is a British fashion designer and social entrepreneur. Kerry Summers is co-founder of the global movement Fashion Revolution, which encourages the fashion industry to conserve the environment and value people over profit. Welcome, Kerry. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Can you start by telling us about Fashion Revolution and what inspired you to set up this global initiative? Of course, yes. I mean, I think in a way I almost need to go back almost almost 30 years now to when I started my fashion brand, Patrakuti, back in 1992, which was supposed to be a summer holiday project and somehow ended up growing into something something so much, much bigger. So Patrakuti um, specializes in Panama hats and we became the first company in the world to be fair trade certified by the World Fair Trade Organization. And we were also a pilot for an European Union project about traceability and transparency in supply chain. So we'd traced our Panama hats back to the GPS coordinates of each weaver's house and then back to the the parcels of land where the raw materials were grown for the hats on biodiverse uh, plantations in the, the cloud forest. So in 2013, when I saw the Rana Plaza collapse, I saw the activists actually having to search through the rubble to prove which brands were producing there. And that's when it really became clear to me. You know, I I knew, I already knew how important transparency was and knew it was the key to transforming the industry. And somehow I knew I had to do something about it. And fashion revolution, I mean, the idea just hit me in the bathtub a few days after the collapse and felt like an idea I had to, to get up and do something about. And here we are eight years on, it's become the world's largest fashion activism movement. We have teams in almost 100 countries around the world. And we, sort of, we mobilize citizens, industry and policymakers, and we work all year round in sort of research, education and advocacy work. For listeners who don't know, the Rana Plaza building collapse was the fourth largest industrial disaster in history with more than a thousand people dying. And uh, a lot of big names, big brands like Benetton, Prada, Gucci were actually producing clothes in that factory. So just how damaging is the fashion industry to the environment, Carrie? Yes, I mean, it's really clear that the fashion industry is clearly just out of balance with, with nature, 
I mean, it's sometimes it's hard to get accurate statistics, but it's estimated to emit around 1.7 billion tonnes of CO2 annually. Now, to give you an idea, that's more than the amount created by international flights and shipping combined. Now, I know that there's a most uh, a much touted statistic saying it's the second most polluting industry in the world. That's not actually correct. It's probably somewhere around about fifth or sixth, but it's estimated to represent around 4% of global emissions. And what's particularly concerning is it's been estimated that an 80% industry-wide emissions cut is needed by 2050, even to align with a two degrees Celsius warming scenario. But instead of coming down, emissions are going completely in the opposite direction. And actually earlier this week, I was at a conference and analysts are predicting clothing production to increase by 81% between now and 2030, which is really concerning. And then beyond the emissions, we see the deforestation and the removal of natural grasslands for growing crops for the industry like rubber, bamboo, viscose, or for grazing for wool and leather. And um, I'm sure a lot of us have seen the, the really concerning biodiversity report which came out out last year about just the erosion of, of, of the natural habitat. And of course, trees are one of our, our key weapons in helping to slow the rate of climate change. And I think what's particularly concerning at this time as well is deforestation also makes future pandemics far more likely because it increases the probability of diseases jumping between wild animals and humans as well. Are there impacts on water quality too? Yes, there are. I mean, the impact of the environment doesn't stop once clothing's made and textiles are estimated to be the largest source of microplastic pollution. They account for some 35% of global microplastic pollution. And every time we put a laundry load into the washing machine, around 700,000 microfibers are released. I mean, it's really hard to get a picture of that. And even more so when you imagine you're multiplying that out by the number of washes over a year, the number of people on your street. And this was brought home really clearly to me almost this time last year in February, when I sailed over 2000 miles from the Galapagos to Easter Island with X Expedition as part of an, as a multidisciplinary female crew, a couple of Irish crew members as well who were in my watch. And we carried out research into the devastating environmental impacts of plastics and toxic chemicals. And it was so shocking as we reached the Pacific Gyre, the South Pacific Gyre, the sea looked pristine. It was calm. It was blue. It looked so clear. And every time we brought up trawl after trawl, we had increasing quantities of microplastics. So often 25 or 30 pieces of plastics um, just in, in one sieve from one small amount of, of a few litres of water. And these are just the plastics we can see. They're still being analysed back in the laboratory, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot more fibres which were invisible to the human eye as well. And so I, I witnessed so clearly there just the reflection of, of, our, of our excess and our textile consumption um, there in the surface of the sea. Yeah, the, the amount of plastic in clothes is staggering. Friends of the Earth in the UK has found up to 64% of our new clothes contain plastic. Is there anything we can do to address this growing problem of microplastic pollution from our clothing? 
it's really concerning. I was listening to a webinar this week on microfibers, and it's not just the plastics. We also don't really know about the cellulosic microfibers as well. So the microfibers from cotton, as well as from, from other fibers like viscose. And it's not just from washing as well. I mean, every time we sort of brush our clothing, every time we put on an item of clothing, these fibers are shedding. So they're being found in the Arctic, they're being found on in snow samples from the top of Everest. So one of the things that we certainly can do is to look at how we wash and care for our clothes as well. So, I mean, first of all, we need to to wash on short cycles and at low temperatures. And some research says that using liquid detergents and conditioners um, will help to slow microfiber release. And also avoid the delicate cycle because it's been found that using that extra water actually produces a lot more microfiber. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. My guest is Carrie Summers, co-founder of Fashion Revolution. Carrie, there's a perception that fast fashion, which is inexpensive clothing that's produced rapidly by mass market retailers that are responding to the latest trends, that, that fast fashion is causing the most damage to the environment. Given all your experiences around the world, do you think that's true, that fast fashion is the worst offender? I think it depends on the perspective um, you're looking at. I mean, at Fashion Revolution, we always try to talk about fashion as a whole rather than price point when it comes to addressing these industry issues, because we know that fashion's abuses don't always correlate to how much it costs. I mean, to give you an example, many mass-produced luxury brands produce on exactly the same production lines in countries like Bangladesh um, with comparable social and environmental consequences. Um, you know, albeit in slightly smaller quantities, but the difference in price is mostly just the brand's markup. And a couple of years ago, I was in Bangladesh and I was taken to the, the tannery district. And it was, it was truly shocking. This is where they were tanning the leather for bags for sort of mass-produced luxury brands. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine the sort of labels um, they were producing for there. There was effluent everywhere, flowing out into the drainage ditches, out into the river, which was home to a red-listed species of river dolphin. I saw young workers, underage workers, no health and safety equipment at all. And I was told that no brand had ever sent a representative to visit the tanneries. So, I mean, really fashion, the industry's problems are just, they're bigger than one company's actions and bigger than just the fast fashion sector. It's systemic failure. And that's why we're really actively working to try and avoid these binary arguments and bring a higher degree of nuance into these conversations. I know that you've testified in front of the UK government on this issue, but what countries are leading in addressing the problem of the environmental impacts of fashion? I would say that France is one of the countries leading the way at the moment. I mean, it's become the first country to ban retailers from destroying unsold goods. I'm sure most of us have heard about the Burberry stock burning scandal a few years ago, but really that wasn't a scandal to, to people within the industry because we knew that all brands were doing this. And at the moment, I mean, every year we publish a fashion transparency index, which uh, ranks the levels of transparency of the world's biggest 250 fashion brands and retailers. And we found that only around a quarter of brands and retailers are disclosing what they do with their pre-consumer waste. So this sort of legislation will force the industry to address 
it's huge problem with, with the clothes which we don't buy. And then we also need legislation to deal with post-consumer waste, our discarded clothing. And as part of that Environmental Audit Committee um, report, Fixing Fashion, they proposed adding just a one penny charge per garment to make companies responsible for taking back all of the products they sell. So to help to fund collecting and recycling infrastructure. But unfortunately, the government ministers essentially rejected each and every recommendation in the report. And I'd say probably finally, one really important area to address is this microfiber pollution. And France, again, has become the first country in the world to require all new washing machines to be fitted with microfiber filters from 2025. And there's a Marine Conservation Society petition at the moment calling for similar legislation in the UK. You've mentioned that this is a systemic issue that requires this kind of government intervention. But what can individuals do at the, in the meantime to help solve this problem? We can certainly choose our materials wisely. I mean, there's no easy solutions, but ask the questions. If it's viscose, ask them, do you have a responsible viscose policy? How do I know that there aren't ancient and endangered woodlands entering into into my clothing? So ask the retailers on social media, ask in the shops, use your voice and your power to put pressure on brands to improve their environmental impact. Um, that, that would be my, my real recommendation. And then to educate yourself as, as well, to try and find out more. We have a mantra at Fashion Revolution. Be curious, find out and do something about it. So just start to do your research, start to ask the questions, because our voices really can bring about change and the industry is listening to its customers. I love that mantra. Carrie Summers, co-founder of Fashion Revolution, thank you for joining us here on Down to Earth. Up next, we'll hear how Irish fashion journalist Sarah Malioko changed her clothes to help change the planet. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk. You might be wondering why you were hearing Fashion by David Bowie, one of my favorite artists. Well, we've heard from our last guest how fashion is such a polluting industry. But what do you do about it when it's your job to write about new clothes? Fashion and lifestyle journalist Sarah Malioko is here to tell me how she coped with the hard truth about her industry. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, you've described yourself as a stereotypical fashionista in your younger years. And somewhere along the way, you had this moment of realization about the damage that this was causing. Can you tell me more about your journey? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was younger, I was always really invested in learning more about fashion, but I more so saw that from like a design perspective. Um, So I launched a blog when I was like 14, I used to write about all different aspects of the fashion industry and as that grew and grew I became so much more of a consumer of fast fashion whereas my blog actually kind of started out being about individual style and vintage shopping and just as it grew it became so much easier to write more about fast fashion brands because they were so much more accessible to the reader because if I posted you know that an outfit of the day post maybe wearing something from a charity shop 
people kind of would get a bit frustrated that they couldn't copy that exact look because they couldn't pick up the exact same item. So I really fell away from writing about vintage fashion, as I said, moved into more focusing on fast fashion brands and high street brands. Um, but then as I went on into college and in my early 20s, I just started thinking more and more you know, I ask so many questions as a journalist. It's like my natural instinct to be really nosy, um, but I'd never really questioned how it's possible for us to have this online fast fashion industry where pretty much any type of clothing or trend of clothing that I can imagine, I can conjure up and have at my door within a few days. And I realized that I'd never really questioned how that was possible or where those clothes were coming from. So I started doing a little bit more research and I think, you know, people always hear things like, you know, fast fashion is made in sweatshops, fast fashion is bad for the environment, but because of the hyper convenience culture that we live in, people don't generally tend to look deeper than that because it's just so kind of entrenched in our day-to-day -day life to shop trends and shop on the high street and shop in a way that we perceive as affordable. Um, but when I started looking into how the clothing is made and the impacts that it had on the environment, I realized that it was important for me in my personal life to turn away from that kind of consumption after I learned some pretty hard truths about the industry. There's a lot of marketing and money pumped into convincing us all to keep purchasing more clothing. How do you think we should counteract that kind of messaging if we don't have an enormous marketing budget ourselves? Absolutely. Um, like the fast fashion industry really bases a lot of its marketing on psychology and making you feel like you're not as worthy or as valuable as the person next to you who has the latest trends. And, you know, we kind of came from an era where we no longer had specific style seasons like spring, summer, autumn, winter. We have a new style season every week and we're pressured to purchase these things to be considered on trend and to be considered valuable in the eyes of these companies. So I think trying to come back to your own, really thinking about what you like in clothing and being more true to your personal style is really important to try and detach yourself from that messaging. I know for me, when I started to turn away from fast fashion, like I was a, such a fast fashion consumer, every time I got a paycheck straight away, I would blow hundreds of euro on websites like ASOS and Urban Outfitters. And I realized when I kind of look at pictures from that time, I don't really even look like myself because I'm not dressing in a way that I really am excited about and it's not experimental. It's just very much whatever is in the new in section that I felt like, you know, would make people perceive me in a certain way that I was, you know, cool and trendy. And especially in, you know, my job, there's a lot of events and things and there's this, I don't know, strange pressure to maybe not wear things twice. I think trying to see the value in your own clothes that you already wear is really important to kind of deter from that messaging as well. Like kind of respect your money that you've put into these clothing, to these clothing items that you already have and try and get the best amount of wear out of them possible because the most sustainable clothing in this world is the stuff you already own. What about the brands that call themselves sustainable fashion? Should we be looking toward those? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, there are some barriers within accessibility to truly sustainable brands because we're so used to buying things cheaply that sometimes people can find it difficult to part ways with a certain amount, a higher amount of money, we'll say, for an item than they're used to paying. Um, but definitely like investing in small local designers, um, you know, maybe buying one thing for 100 euro instead of five things for 20 euro a pop. And those things will end up lasting you so much longer and you'll get so much more value out of them in the long run. Um, but also currently because sustainability has seen such an increase in interest in the public domain and public consciousness, there's a lot of greenwashing going on at the moment where brands who are honestly some of the worst in terms of environmental impact and human rights infringement are really kind of promoting certain lines within their brand as being sustainable whereas them having you know one line of sustainably sourced cotton items is in no way offsetting the damage that they're doing overall and it kind of tricks the consumer into a false sense of security that it can't be that bad but at the end of the day you know you're still kind of lining the pockets of fast fashion conglomerates and continuing to empower them to you know, keep damaging the earth the way they are and using up resources that aren't infinite. Now, I thought I was doing the right thing by donating my unwanted clothing to charity. And I've since found out that, for example, in the UK, only 10 to 30 percent of clothing that's donated to charity shops is actually sold in the UK. And the rest is exported overseas to places like Ghana and Pakistan and can potentially damage their own indigenous textile industries. What happens to clothing that isn't sold in charity shops? Yes. So charity shopping is a good way if you have limited means of accessing clothes in a more sustainable way than it would be buying from fast fashion. But it's not a perfect solution by any means. Like currently, we don't really have a perfect solution in the kind of consumer culture that we exist in. Our society just isn't set up that way yet. Um, but yeah, in terms of charity shops, particularly in the UK, they kind of, you know, they'll say, the clothes that aren't sold are donated to textile recycling companies and then the onus is kind of off them in terms of what happens to them after that um and it's kind of seen as okay because then it's like the money's still going to charity because they've sold the clothing on to another company it's just kind of changing hands rather than going to a sustainable source but in Ireland, I think things are a little bit different. Obviously, it would depend charity to charity. Um, but, you know, I've done just anecdotal research in my area. I've talked to people who work in charity shops um, specifically because it just crossed my mind a few years ago, you know, what actually happens to these clothes. And I asked them and they got I got a variety of different answers. You know, some people said that they're donated to construction industry to make insulation for housing other people said that they kind of you know will save the clothes that aren't sold and design like textile design students will come in and you know take them off their hands and use them to experiment with their designs in university all kinds of different answers well, Sarah, I think so many people will relate to your story of loving clothes and fashion and yet wanting to do the right thing environmentally and socially. My thanks to Sarah Malioko for sharing her story. You can check out her visual journey into vintage shopping and clothing repair on Instagram and Twitter at Sarah Malioki.
Just a reminder that in a few minutes, we'll be talking to comedian Cullum O'Regan about his green life, where he'll tell us about the small green changes he's made in his everyday life. But before that, my next guests have a unique solution to addressing waste through high fashion. Troy Armour is the founder of the recycled fashion competition for youth, Junk Couture. And Maxime O'Sullivan is Junk Couture's 2019 winner. Good evening, Troy and Maxime. Good evening. Good evening. Troy, I've been following Junk Couture's journey for the last 10 years from a small Irish recycled fashion competition for youth to now becoming a global event in seven continents. For listeners that missed all the excitement over the last decade, can you tell us what Junk Couture is about and what drove you to set it up? So um, Junk Couture in its simplest form is a, a competition where young people are challenged to create wearable garments from everyday rubbish. Um, I think the idea for me started, I suppose it started kind of way back when I was a kid. Um, resources weren't the same in Ireland as what they are now. Um, money wasn't as plentiful. Uh, everything in your home was reusable. So um, the last place something went was the bin. And the idea always was, what could I create with this? Um, that married with my love of fashion. Um, is kind of the foundation of where Junkature has come out of. And over the last 10 years, something that has grown from a little idea in the north of Donegal quickly became, it became, I'd say, a national institution now. Um, it's very culturally um, embedded in schools and so on. And this year we've decided that it's a program that can go across the world. That's such a great story. Maxime, you're now a fashion design student at the National College of Art and Design, but winning Junk Couture in 2019 really brought your talent to national attention. Can you describe that winning design? Of course, I'd be glad to. So um, I originally entered in, in 2018, but only got to the semifinals, which is still amazing, I think, personally. But um, in 2019, I really decided to really put 100% work in and I remember the day after coming home from the regionals in Limerick I was brainstorming with my family and thinking of all these ideas I could put into my design so eventually I settled on making an outfit on my family's cinema in Dingle just a small local operation that has been in the family for 40 years so I decided to use all the DVDs the VHS tapes and the film trailers and I just kind of wove in the history and the story of the cinema to make my outfit. So I spent the year on it and really enjoyed every part of it. And that, that's on Instagram at Cinematic Junk Couture. I was, I was looking at it yesterday mm -hmm. and it, it looks like something out of a movie. It's just an incredible outfit. To what extent did you consider sustainability in your designs before you competed in Junk Couture? I'd say similar to Troy, I had a bit of a story where I was always using my own stuff you're always using this recycled materials in what I was doing and these things would be just the most useless things ever but the thought was there and I was always taking stuff from the bin my mom was like oh my god Maxime stop taking stuff from the bin the house has become the bin itself but um I was always making little stuff and always saving and salvaging little stuff so unconsciously I was kind of had the ethos of junk couture but in such a small scale and format but Juncture really gave me the opportunity to maximise that. And was that that interest in, in skip diving, essentially, was that out of economic interest or environmental interest? Why, why do you think you were always going into the bin for your materials? I think it was a bit of both. Like, I obviously didn't have a lot of money as a child. And 
I well, like there wasn't a lot of money to be spent on craft supplies and stuff and I didn't have the resources to be going to these big fancy shops and stuff but I was always looking for what I could find and just what was the most interesting thing I could find in the bin almost. Troy, and you were telling me earlier that in 2018 you attended a global fashion conference in Costa Rica which addressed the environmental impact of fashion. How do you think that experience shaped your views? Um, yeah, so I went to Amina in, in Costa Rica in 20, 2018 and I think the reason that I went was because I realized that uh, I had a huge Gen Z audience and I didn't fully understand myself the impact the fashion industry has on the planet and the three days spent there um it was really an eye-opener and you know one of the big things that came out of it for me was that the fashion industry is the second most pollutant industry in the world and, and I, I i said to you before the shocker that even just the amount of water you know needed for one pair of jeans um and i come away from that realizing that you know we do have an audience and it is Maxim's age. They're, you know, they're all under 20. And if we can shape their outlook on, on, on the clothes that they wear and that there's more of a backstory, it's not just how it looks. There is a backstory where it was sourced, where the materials are from, how it was put together. Um, you know, and then this thing that in that generation, there seems to be 52 seasons. So it's this idea that every week you must have something new. You can't be on social media with the same thing. You know, there's an opportunity for us to go in and say, you know, this these things, we they're not sustainable. We we have to change the chip some way. And I think Junkature, in a way, is starting to play its part in, in it's a self-education process where young people are starting to see that we just don't throw everything in the bin. And, and we're kind of leading that at that age group. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. My guests are Troy Armour and Maxime O'Sullivan from Junk Couture. Troy, we were talking earlier to fashion journalist Sarah Malioko about the same thing, the challenge of changing consumption habits to reduce the harmful impact of clothing. What do you think that governments should be doing to address this? Governments have a big challenge now, in fairness. Um, and, you know, I've had numerous conversations with various ministers of the environment and um, they have, you know, they're at the point even of just, uh, the guy explained to me, of just trying to get people to put waste in different color bins. And I was kind of talking to him about, you know, how can we get people to not put it in the bin at all? I think people themselves have as much a responsibility as governments do to, to you know, there's that much information out there now. It's not like it's a closed off society. We have access to the information. There, there is a lot of stuff written about this. And as I said before, the backstory to fashion, you know, you, you can close your eyes to it and go, okay, this is a lovely garment I bought for five euro. Um, or you can actually go out and say, you know what, what, what is happening behind this? I need to change my attitude to fashion. I need to change my attitude to consumption because um, Junkature, if we can influence young people to change the 52 seasons to just wear something twice, you know, we would have the consumption rate. Um, Olivia Firth, who's a big advocate for, for green fashion and was one of the lead speakers at Amina, is trying to get people to see this, that we can wear something 30 times. In Gen Z, we're just trying to influence them to wear it twice or three times. And by doing that, we can have a 50% impact on the consumption and therefore you know, make fashion a more sustainable industry among Gen Zers. 
Maxime, you're part of that social media generation, many of whom feel they can't be pictured twice in the same outfit as Troy referred to. What do you think is the solution to changing that mindset in Gen Z? Um, I think that's definitely, number one, a big question, but there's definitely a lot of potential solutions for it, as Troy was kind of saying, as Troy was saying. But um, I think it really has to maybe come, I think it has to come down to quality in the garments, number one, and maybe having a story behind them, it helps as well. If teenagers are latched onto something, if Gen Zers are latched onto something, they will enjoy it so much more and they will naturally keep everything so much more. They will keep the skirts, they will keep the dresses for the one night out. And so I think it really boils down to quality and some kind of a story and some kind of something that just they latch onto. I think that's a great that's idea. A good point. So, so that it's not just disposable. You know, I mm. got, I've got this thing. We, we, I don't know how we became a disposable, you know, society. It, it was this idea you just throw it away um, if it's even shabby. And I think that that's the influence I want to to change in junkature. You know, I, it's mm. to subtly get young people to see it's not just put it in the bin and buy a new one. That you could, you know, Maxim's the perfect example. If there's a hole in your sock, you can sew it. You just don't throw it in the bin. You can sew it. You can you can you can fix it. You can upscale it if, if you've spilled something on it. Um, upcycle it by putting something over it. There are other ways of just it's not disposable. Well, it's been wonderful to hear an exciting Irish story now made good on the world stage. And I'm really looking forward to tuning into the Junk Couture competitions from now on. My thanks to Troy and Maxime for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth at News Talk. Stay tuned as coming up next, comedian Cullum O'Regan will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, comedian and writer Cullum O'Regan joins us to talk about the small changes he's made in his everyday life that he says probably won't save the planet but make him feel better. Cullum, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. I haven't done any damage yet today, I think. I probably used the gas cooker or the gas on the cooker and a kettle. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm I'm hoping that's within the end en- that's within the envelope of normal living. But so far so good. <laughs> good to hear. Cullen, we were talking about the environmental impact of fashion in this week's episode of Down to Earth. And as a child in the eighties in Ireland, I've heard you give some strong opinions about our fashion choices then versus now. What's your solution to this problem? Well, there's plenty of reasons not to go back to the eighties and it was often a grim place. But definitely one thing there wasn't then that I can remember was fast fashion. Uh, My feeling is that if you wanted fashion back then, you actually had to fast for it. And even like we wouldn't have had a whole lot. Anyway, we were small farmers, so we had not a whole lot of cash to spare. But most people had like you knew them by their jumper, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like they'd have their one good. You knew them by their good clothes and then their second outfits and then whatever they wore for painting, uh, painting gates and that kind of thing. So there was just such a volume of clothing less like like, for example, I can remember most of my shoes from my childhood and when they arrived, how they wore out and how many like at any given time, I never had more than one or two pairs on the go. And this isn't like a four Yorkshireman. Oh, we were so poor, but we were happy. It's just that you 
had shoes that you wore and then they fell apart and then you got new ones. And even like I think back to knee patches on trousers, uh, school trousers that just kept on going. And like, obviously, this isn't nobody wants to indulge in misery porn, but there's such a huge gap between that and having outfits for an event like uh, I feel like I've, I'm gaming fast fashion because I'm buying fast fashion and then holding on to it for the same length of time. Like I, we are, does it, does it, maybe it's uh, depends on when you grew up, but you have that kind of, you know, you look at a jumper and go, I have that 10 years and it's the, it makes me so happy. You, know? <laughs> you, you mentioned you grew up on a small farm in Cork. How do you think that experience shaped your views on environmental issues? Well, it's, Interesting. Farming is an interesting uh, background because while, yes, it does uh, give you a sense of where food comes from and, uh, you know, the impact of what you do directly on an environment, because, you know, farmers change their environment in order to grow food, uh, in order to have uh, to have an income. Um, So you're very close you're immediately close to 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 the environment in that way, but also I think uh, you can you can kid yourself about how green Ireland is simply by growing up surrounded by green fields. You know, it took me a long time to realize that a beautiful green field is in fact uh, just growing grass and nothing else. And yes, it might be capturing some carbon, but fundamentally, like it's sort of dead uh, in in the sense that there's no, you know, there's no weeds or thistles or um, insects flying around and horseflies nibbling you and all that kind of thing. So it's a uh, it's a curious kind of a mix, um, but definitely I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, And especially a small farm where, you know, you grow your own food uh, for for most of my life. And then we kind of it just became too (laughs) After all, I just got sick of picking your own spuds and it became cheaper to buy them in super value. And uh, but it does like it's somewhere to go back to or to have a think about when I'm trying to trying to figure out what what I should do. You were telling me earlier that your father was very passionate about trees. Do you think that might have shaped your interest in some way? Definitely. Yeah, he loved trees. He loved planting them. He uh, would have planted stuff for other people around the place. Uh, I think he took Dutch elm disease personally. Uh, we lost we lost a lot of good trees back in the 70s, man, and 70s and 80s. And, you know, like trees that he was fond of along the ditches because the ditch is such an Irish thing. And it obviously we let we know now how important it is in teams with wildlife. But when you lose your elms from the ditch, kind of upset him. So he wanted to replace them quickly. And he planted lots of poplars. Now I know it's it's quick gratification, but still a tree's a tree. So he he loved planting trees. And I think uh, that sense of watching somebody plant trees, plant little groves in corners that, you know, the tractor couldn't reach. Um, and then round about the late 80s, started hearing about the Amazon. So I was obsessed with trees. Uh, I used to like do you remember reading books where children would run away and hide in the woods like it's just the most like um and obviously the weather was always beautiful and if it was snowing they found a a hole in a tree to hide in and they were perfectly warm but that kind of 
you know, around about seven, eight, nine, if you're into trees and then the kind of books you're reading are generally have lots of woods to hide in. Uh, and then coming in the other side is the far, like the news about the Amazon and as a very anxious, like 10 or 11 year old watching maps that show the reduction of tree coverage in the Amazon and being very like worried about it. And then and then and then Captain Planet comes on the television and it looks like there's a fix. Uh, I don't know if people remember Captain Planet, but generally there would be like some bad guy, Duke Nukem or somebody like that, like pour, like just willfully pouring sludge into a jungle stream. Like there was no apparent economic uh, rationale for it, but there'd just be a truck, like there'd be butterflies flying around and then somebody would back a truck full of, and the, tr the truck would have toxic sludge written on the side of it. And then Captain Planet would find out about it and he'd get these five kids with their magic rings to combine and they would just send like floods or fire or um, a landslide to just to disrupt the um, the bad guy. Now, in hindsight, probably the planeteers were doing more damage to ecosystems in trying to fix things. It's hard to shake the Captain Planet feeling that we can fix this with some magic as opposed to, no, we have to fix this with really boring policy that takes for ages and you need all the stakeholders on board. That, uh, that comment, that. that comment about uh, the de desire to fix things, that's spoken like a true engineer. And I understand you have a degree in engineering and also a podcast on math called yeah. the, called the Function Room. In addition to making people laugh, so how do you think that engineering and mathematical perspective shapes your interest in green things? There was a time I studied engineering and then went, went to work in something to do with computers. So I never practiced as an engineer, but there is a moment at which you're. Uh, and I still am slightly enthralled to building stuff. Oh, you know, like the power of of humanity to shape things. Uh, so there's a bit of that. There's a latent bit of that left over. And, I, you know, I need all that as well, too. There's also an element of like when you do lots of maths in in school and in college, you become very aware of like the left hand side of the equation matches the right hand side. And so when so when I look at kind of the environment and I see something being burnt or thrown away, it's like, oh, that like waste just feels abhorrent to me, like that you wouldn't at least give it a go to try and reduce waste or not burn a thing. Like when people talk about like uh, fossil fuels and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing and all that kind of thing, it always feels to me like intuitive that if you could at all possibly avoid destroying a thing to make a thing that would seem like it might be a better way to go sense. or if you could get your energy from outside the planet for free like that seems like oh look here's a free thing that you're throwing into the equation that all is that all seems like a good idea now it's very simplistic but it's like i think when you're trying to figure out what to do um in your life and steps you take having like some sort of philosophy even if it's flawed hypocritical ineffective rubbish <laughs> like something it's a starting point you're listening to down to earth on news talk my guest is comedian cullum o'regan cullum your two most recent books are based on a character named Anne divine who the irish independent actually referred to as one of our most endearing literary figures which is huge praise and yes. divine also appears to be quite the environmentalist so tell us more about her well she's old school environmentalist and maybe uh, a bit like me. She gets involved in the local tidy towns. Um, and I always see tidy towns and litter picking as 
a gateway into doing something like it's not the solution because uh, litter and the plastic and all that it's sort of there's sort of a, a backstory to that in that people didn't really care about litter until plastics companies started admonishing people for throwing away the litter that plastics companies deliberately started making more plastic but that being said like pick so Anne gets involved in the tidy towns and it get into that sort of I don't know if anybody's ever picked up litter I do a bit here in around my area there's a sort of a mania takes over where you see some see a bit of rubbish and then you see another bit of rubbish and you can't stop and you're like I just want to pick up the rubbish uh and you even though it's not necessarily doing anything to climate change it is taking some plastic out of the water and out of the seas so it's like a sisyphean task that does have a tiny 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 impact and also what happens is you then you meet other people often i think we are like atomized individuals wondering if anybody else cares about a, a, an issue whatever that issue is and then you find somebody else who like says i'd like to do something about that as well and before you know it there's 20 people who are all you know, picking up a bit of rubbish, even during the pandemic, like a lot of us in our group have just gone out on our own, picked up a bit for an hour. Feels good, you know. Um, so, so there's a bit. So Anne gets involved in that. And then through that, she gets she never saw herself as prominent locally, which is kind of a rural euphemism. You know, people who are involved in stuff are prominent, like they might be on committees uh, around the place. And committees are a double edged sword sometimes. But people who get involved in a thing at whatever level is what will fix our current problems. So many people don't want to get involved or don't think they're the type. But actually, you more than likely are. You have a weekly column in the Irish Examiner and you've written about a lot of the green things that you've tried. So what are some of the more successful efforts that you've made in that regard? Well, yeah, I've done little things. And if, and also just to pick up on the word success, like I really think we have to train ourselves to try and fail and not beat ourselves up if we're not as good as we could be and just do a bit. So uh, the little things, we did uh, cloth nappies for, we'll say, 60 or 70 percent of the time with the small with the smallers and it's a bit of work you are more intimately aware of poo you have to do more dealing with poo than you would have with the like you know obviously with disposable nappies and nappy changing you're not it's not like you can't avoid the poo but you kind of tend to do a little wipe then just fold it all away tuck it into a bag and it's gone it's gone whereas with with uh, cloth nappies you very much you're aware right to the end and you may have to wash them again because it didn't quite work the first time and all of that. Um, but what what got us into that and it was my wife kind of did the research and all of that kind of thing is the waste. Like it's just watching the bin lorry, the black bin used, black bin used to be emptied at half, like a few times a year in our house before children arrived. And then when the nappies first came, you'd see the black bin, you'd see the, the machine almost straining to lift the bin. And it just, again, going back to what I was saying about waste, it just feels so wrong that you make a thing and use it once and throw it away. And it's just, and then it, it doesn't even go back to the to the soil. Like it, even the biodegradable part of it gets tucked away inside in a non-biodegradable bit. And it just feels wrong. So um, we bought, we've got cross nappy. So we went, we did that. And up until the children became a little too big and let's not get into detail about volumes of poo but um so we did a bit you know what I mean reduced you know eliminated you know a thousand nappies from the the landfill 
smaller scale tea bags to loose tea sounds like nothing <laughs> but it requires a small bit of effort to strain the tea buy a strainer you make better tea and then suddenly you're just like using less and i don't care if, if plastic if uh, the tea bags are biodegradable most of them aren't still uh they still have to be made somewhere and all of that requires a bit of work so that's just just tiny stuff i started driving whenever we get to drive again trying to drive slower i read somewhere that if you drive at 100 instead of 120 like you reduce wind drag like exponentially so therefore you get more miles to the gallon because i'm driving a diesel car Hip hypocrite hypocrite alert diesel car but it's an old one so i'm going to drive it into the ground and then the next one will be electric but in in within my hypocrisy doing that tiny thing um and also more relaxed driving more slowly it's very hard to give up driving at 120 in ireland though because we we fought for ages to get those motorways and so it seems like a waste to not use them to the fullest extent. Well, when, but, you, when you have an electric car, you'll have to drive slow just to keep the range going. Um, your oh, absolutely, yeah. Your comedy work obviously involved a lot of travel, and that's now impossible due to COVID restrictions. So given all your efforts to, to reduce your environmental impact, do you think that online gigs is going to be your future in the comedy world? Hope not. Um, but it does, like, it does get, it does allow me to access people Myself and a guy called Julian Clancy run a thing called the Dublin Story Slam, which is online, or which was storytelling in the Sugar Club. Um, people standing up telling true stories about themselves. We moved to online and we were able to do a show uh, with people from the uh, Ballyfermot and Chapel is a disability action collective because they wouldn't have been able to get up the steps of our stage in the Sugar Club. You know, so there's an accessibility thing that people are overlooking. No, you still need, we should still have accessibility for everywhere in real life like zoom should not reduce the obligation but like there is so you, you get access to people and i've done a good few gigs online now they have their upsides but it is i i still miss that human contact um even just like after a gig like i did a gig last night now and then i came downstairs and there was no decompression it was like uh put the children to bed <laughs> so it's like that that after gig thing where normally i'd be cycling home from town or a, or a long drive up from up the country where you decompress and think but i've made do and online i um i've stopped thinking about what it's not and just said no this is the way the gig is let's make people laugh i run a comedy club in kilmainham i want to wait till everybody is absolutely comfortable because it's the small clubs where the beauty of them is that you are literally rubbing shoulders with a stranger next to you and they laugh and you laugh and you're kind of almost slightly wobbling together in laughter like that won't work if we're all two meters away from each other kind of laughing into our sleeves so when it's fully back i'll be back but in the meantime i'm happy to zoom away or hybrid or whatever whatever it takes. My thanks to comedian Cullum O'Regan for his small efforts to save the planet and for making us all feel better at the same time. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening and thanks to my producer Alex Rousseau for this episode of Down to Earth. Don't forget you can subscribe to the series on podcast at newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Next week we're getting behind the wheel to tell you everything you need to know about electric vehicles. But until then, stay curious.